Hey church, uh, we are in our second installment of the Mind of Christ series where we're talking about how to think like Jesus. Remember, I'm not telling you what to think or what to believe, trying to, trying to shape our minds to, to help us learn how to think like Jesus. And so the topic we're dealing with today is a topic that often causes a lot of vitriol, a lot of disunity, a lot of, of quarrels and fighting and arguments and uh, broken relationships. And uh, it can lead to churches splitting apart, uh, things like that. That is not what we want to show to the world. That is not the love of Jesus. And, and so this, this topic today uh, is often termed as like gender roles and, you know, how to view masculinity and femininity. How, uh, what is, what is, uh, you know, how do we view male and female, the different sexes? Like what, what is all that, what does all that look like? And how does that work out in the church? How does that work out in the home? How does that work out in society? And, and so those are, those are all questions that surround this topic and again, uh, I hope you don't leave disappointed because I'm not going to tell you what to believe. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to help you operate in the mind of Christ. And that's the whole goal here. So we're going to talk, talk about some of this stuff. But um, what we want to lead with is grace. What we want to lead with is peace. What we want to lead with is love. And uh, we want to have a conversation this morning or today. Uh, whenever you're you're viewing this and in your R3 group this is hopefully going to help you have conversations maybe not about this specific issue because you may say you know we don't need to talk about this right now um but hopefully it'll help you have conversations around other issues like it that um are are um uh explosive sometimes so the context of this today, we're going to be out of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, as Adam read earlier. And the context of this passage is it comes directly after uh, James talking about faith and works. So if you have a certain kind of faith, if you have faith, well, it leads to works. It has to be paired together. It's hear and obey, right? There's something that accompanies it. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe in shudder. So that's why it's like, well, if you call it, that's why I don't use the terminology as much a believer in Jesus, but I say follower of Jesus. So um, what we're, because what we want is a faith, right? Uh, orthodoxy, right theology leads to what? Works, right practice, um, orthopraxy. And then immediately before this passage, James talks about the tongue. And he says it's it's is it is a it can be a, a powerful weapon to destroy or it can be a powerful tool to build up. And and the tongue can go either way. And 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 so then he goes in this passage, and often when we talk about this issue, uh, the tongue gets in the way here, where where we tend to destroy instead of build up. And so hopefully. As we talk about this over the next few minutes, uh, we will come out of this better, thinking more like Jesus, knowing how to think about this issue in particular so that we build up, not tear down and destroy others. Okay, 
verse 13, he says, who is wise in understanding among you? I mean, right off the bat, guys, that should, that should make you stand back a bit or sit down and say, yeah, I don't know if I want to call myself the wise and understanding one here. So that should already cause you to sit and listen, be, be slow to speak, not be quick to speak, be slow to anger, not be quick to anger, and to hear and to listen. It should also cause you to be very um, careful about what you say, right? So he says, who's wise and understanding among you? Well, I know for me, I'm going to say, ooh, I don't know if I'm going to say that about myself right now um, on, on certain things. So he says, if you are wise and understanding, though, that person, by his good conduct, let him show his works, right? We talk about faith and works. Let him practice in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness gets a bad rap because, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it rhymes with weakness. So, but meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is actually power under control. So it's controlling it's, it's having this power, but controlling it. So Jesus is the epitome of someone who is meek and gentle, right? Because he has all the power in the world, but he controls it in a way that builds up, not tears down, right? And also, I think uh, in, in a similar vein here, because meekness is power under control, so, so there's self-control there, um, the, the word submission gets a bad rap. And that's often a word that's thrown about in this conversation on, on gender roles and male and female and things like that is the word submission. And, and I, I think it's a bad rap because, well, it's been used poorly. It's been used painfully. It's been used to tear down. Uh, and, and it's been used wrongly. Uh, because here's the thing. The Bible never uses submission as coercion. Those aren't synonyms in the Bible. It uses submission uh, when it talks about, uh, when it talks about um, male and female. It uses that word in terms of willing submission, okay? Willingly putting yourself under the authority of somebody else. So it's meekness, right? It's, it's being like you have power, but you can control it and place it in, its, in, in, in this spot, Right. So um, now before you tune me out, what, like I said, I'm not going to tell you what to believe today. So we're not going to go down um, and talk about theological systems here. We're not going to we're not going to do that except to except to say maybe we shouldn't be entrenched in those theological systems. Um, all I want you to see is is in terms of submission and that word. And the only reason I'm using is because it is used in the Bible. Um, but I want you to be able to take, take the baggage and the pain and the hurt that's maybe been caused to you and, and, and put it aside for a second. Uh, because this, uh, in submission, if we're willingly doing this, well, it's our choice. We're willingly placing ourselves under someone's authority. And here's the reality. The authority you have, if you have authority, the authority you have is limited. It's not unlimited. Only God has unlimited authority, unlimited power. <clears throat> Everything we have is limited. So, at the very least, 
you're submitting yourself to God. Okay, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've chosen to submit yourself to God. So every day you wake up is an act of submission. And the person we're supposed to be like, Jesus, who we're following, who we're supposed to imitate, all he showed us when he came to this world was an act of submission. He put aside certain things. He was meek. He laid his, his life down for us. He took on the form of a servant. He's obedient to death, even death on a cross, a public, humiliating, criminalized death where he's completely innocent, right? So his full life is an act of submission to the Father where he says, I only do what he tells me to do. He says, to do the Father's will is food for me. That feeds me. That pushes me forward, right? That gives me sustenance. That sustains me, right? So his whole life is an act of submission. And for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, your whole life that you've chosen is an act of submission to God. You're like, well, yeah, I'm, I, I'm fine with that. I can submit to God, but I'm not going to submit to other people. Well, do you do whatever you want to do at work? Or do you have to adhere to your organization's values? Like if you work in a sushi bar, can you just start serving hamburger meat on sushi? Well, no, you actually have to submit to their rules. You know, if your boss says your shift is from four to eight o'clock at night, can you say, no, I'm gonna show up uh, at eight to 10 in the morning? And I'm going to take a two-hour break and I'll come back maybe. No, you submit yourself to those rules. So, so you're submitting yourself to others all throughout your day, to your job, to your co-workers' ideas, to your, boss, to your boss's demands, to your organization, your company's way of doing things, to your spouse's um, wishes, to your kids' desires, to your sin. To, I mean, there's bad things we submit to all the time. So you're submitting to things constantly. You are choosing to do certain things. You're choosing to place yourself underneath certain levels of authority. Okay. But then when we talk about generals, when we talk about male and female, we get so offended when someone says to submit to the person or the people who love you the most. So Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ah, I'm offended. Uh, and then it, it, it goes on from there, which is, is interesting because uh, the verb isn't in the second verse, which means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's an unfortunate uh, break in your Bible with a subtitle. Um, because those verses should go together. 521 and 522, submit to one another reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Like, that should all be understood in the same, in the same vein as submit to one another reverence for Christ. Hey, he's saying, submit to one another reverence for Christ. You're already submitting. Wives, you do it this way. Husbands, it looks like this. That's, that, and I'm not going to tell you what to believe beyond that, but, I'm just, I'm just reading the Bible for what it is. Remember our theological pyramid, right? It's scriptures, it's hermeneutics, it's biblical theology. Biblical theology is huge. 
in, in understanding this. Uh, most of our theological systems are systematic theologies. So we, so for instance, you might have heard the terms complementarianism or egalitarianism. I don't ever use those words. I would never put myself in those categories because they're systematic theological categories that have very little biblical theology, right? So they've missed their whole foundation. And, and so <clears throat> you, you kind of, put yourself in a danger zone when you put yourself in a man-made theological system. Now, that doesn't mean that that system doesn't have benefits and doesn't help us understand things. It does, but but it bre- it can break down. And sometimes we put our whole faith and trust in a man-made system that systematizes what we can try to understand about the Bible. And so we only see through that lens. And we're not supposed to see all things through that lens. And that creates, that creates heartache. Um, so <clears throat> going back to the theological pyramid, you have, you have everything there, practical, historical, systematic, biblical, hermeneutics, um, and the scriptures there, right? Uh, and in gender roles, though, we've, we've mixed all that up. And so just, just think about this. How much of your view... How much of your view, because hopefully today, well, let's just start here. Okay. How much of your view on gender roles is informed by culture or by scripture? You gotta take an honest assessment of where you're getting what you, of where you are getting your views on gender, of where you're getting your views on the sexes. Right of where you're getting your view on what masculinity is fem- and femininity and femininity is, right? A lot of uh, a lot of our views come from culture, and they're not that old. Right? And a lot of our views come from uh, just <clears throat> how about history, right? How much of your view is is based on history, and you don't even know it, rather than theology. I mean, if we go back to the to Greek philosophy and how they viewed women, you would find a lot of parallels with how women are treated today. Like, guys, that goes back thousands of years. And we don't even realize it, right? And we're getting our Christian understanding of how, of how um, women should be treated off of a secular Greek philosophical understanding. And we've mixed those two. Guys, you can go back to the Victorian era, which isn't that long ago, a couple hundred years ago, right? And, and, and in that era, how many things in that era, and, and we love Victorian literature, right? We love Jane Austen. We love Pride and Prejudice. And we love, guys, the reason they're writing those novels and the reason it's, it's, it's cause they're, they're fiction. They romanticize that to how things maybe should look more like, but, in the Victorian era, things are things are pretty bad for not. I mean, okay, things are pretty bad for women. Things are pretty bad for everybody <laughs> because because it was just. I mean, we. I won't go into all the history, but it's just a different time. It wasn't. Uh, there weren't a lot of nice things back then. So um, we even you can trace things back to that. But but guys, even as as uh, as recent as World War II and how you had, you had um, this whole generation of men going off to war because women weren't allowed to go to war then, although there are so many women who were nurses and, and, um, and helped 
keep the military moving forward uh, through transcription and communications and all these things. So there's so so many women involved in those efforts too. Um, but you had all these men, like whole generation, dying, dead. And so millions of them gone from Europe, for instance, um, and, and from here in North America. And then you have this, this uh, the, the men coming back and the, you know, this is obviously coming off of the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s and everything. And then men starting to work outside the home and women now being in the home. And guys, they used to be together on the farm. And now you have this separation where they're working there and, and, and women are, are here and, and women have been taking care of everything when the men have been gone. Now the men come back and, and now that is, that has somehow been intertwined with the Christian ideal because of history. And, um, and so there's so many things there. There's, it's an intricate web. Um, and a lot of it is deceitful because it's, it's our, it's culture, it's, it's society, and it's not the scriptures. And so a lot of our view on these things are, are influenced by things we don't even realize. I didn't even, I mean, guys, I'm barely scratching the surface of it. So what I'm trying to show you here is that, uh, I didn't even get into Darwin and evolution. I mean, guys, people love to champion science and evolution. I'm not making a statement on evolution here. I'm just saying people love to champion science and evolution. But Darwin literally said, "Men is males are the superior species because according to evolution, we have bigger heads, which all you women are saying, yeah. <laughs> all you guys do have big heads. Um, uh, so therefore, we have bigger brains. So therefore, we're more intelligent and have more of the capacity for intelligence. Wow. Um, and that's the theory we champion today, right? So, uh, again, I'm not saying throw evolution out or anything like that. Uh, I'm not making a statement on creationism. I'm just saying that uh, even in that, there's, there's, a, there's a thread that's woven in the way we think about things. And, and we, don't, we don't even realize it. And that has in, influenced the church. It's infiltrated the church. And, and so... Back in this passage here, he says, uh, he says here in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, okay, I feel like those two things fuel a lot of this conversation on both sides. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I mean, just think about that for, for yourself. Um, and I thought about that for myself going through this. So just, just think about those two things in your conversations on theological issues. But in this one in particular, how much bitter jealousy is there? Because you want what they have. How much selfish, selfish ambition is there because you feel like you deserve this, right? Those things, he says, if you have those things in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What an interesting statement. Be false to the truth. So the question is, has this happened to you? Has this happened to the church? Are we being false to the truth? Do we think we have the truth or we're actually being false to it? That's a hard question. 
And we need to do some serious reflection and introspection as the church to say, have we been false to the truth? How do we find out? Well, we have to be willing for some walls to be broken down. Yet be willing to let go of some traditions. We have to be willing to be wrong. And we have to have open hearts and open minds. I think sometimes fear guides so much of these conversations. Not the fear we talked about last time, which is honorers, but fear of cowardice. Fear of something being taken from us. Fear of, oh, if, if this happens, if a male is allowed to do this or a woman is allowed to do that, or if, a male, if that's taken away from a male or that's taken away from a woman, like, it's going to lead to this. And when we have this slippery slope fallacious um, argument all prepared. And we build this straw man that's easily taken down, right? And we throw in these, these red herrings and they're all things that, we, that cause us, that are indications that we're not actually thinking critically on the issues. They're actually just accepting something that's always been. And so you got to be willing to be open and have your traditions gone. You really have to be willing for those walls to be broken down. You have to be willing for the hardness of your heart, through that pain that you may have experienced in this conversation, for the Lord to soften it and to say, yeah, there's, there's a more excellent way. Well, Paul says that way is love. And so uh, here as in, in this uh, topic in particular, Genesis 1, so I'm going to give you the foundation, okay? Again, I'm not going to tell you what to believe here. I'm going to tell you how to, how to believe, uh, right? We've talked about love and grace and peace. That's how we should do it. Um, how we should have our, that's right practice, right? Um, but I'm going to give you a foundation here. The foundation is from Genesis 1. This is verse 26 and 27. This is that we are created in the image of God. Male and female, it says, he created them in his image, so, if, okay, here's, if both sexes are created in the image of God, if male is created in the image of God, if female is created in the image of God, then is God male or female? If male and female are both created in the image of God, is God masculine or is he feminine? I hope at the very least that causes you to stop and think. You see, male and female are the sexes. And then we have gender, which is a social construct. So you notice I talked about male and female and masculine and feminine. Masculinity, femininity, that's, that's a gender social construct. In the church, we've, we've, we've exchanged those two, right? We've made gender into the sexes um, because we say a male is supposed to act a certain way and a female is supposed to act a certain way. And we've taken our gender social constructs and imported them into the Bible, so does that mean there are not typically more masculine things and more feminine things? Well, 
Not necessarily. But does it also, does, but does that mean that those things can cross over if that's masculine and that's, oh no, not necessarily either. Um, so, here's what we often say is typical masculinity. It's a man who is hardworking, a man who is strong, Right, so if so, if Daniel got beat in that arm wrestle earlier, um, we we would say, "Oh, he just got his man card taken from him." Right, like, haha, gender gender joke. Um, so hardworking, strong, dignified, responsible. He's an initiative taker. He uh, works with his hands. He loves to work with his hands. Uh, he provides for his family. He takes charge in, in business and in dealings and takes initiative. That's typically what we look, what, what we term <clears throat> masculine in, in society. Uh, that's, that's typically what people would, would attribute, uh, in, in the church to someone who's masculine, right? So before you, before you start, <laughs> I don't know where you're going with this. You're probably wondering, but, um, Let's do a little exercise. So I want you guys in your three groups, or if you're at home by yourself, I want you to do this. Um, again, we're gonna give you a minute, but this is probably gonna take you a little bit longer than that, so feel free to pause. I want you to go through Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. And I want you to jot down all the characteristics of what the Bible says is ideal femininity. So that's what this is. This is um, when, when we talk about uh, the, the female here and the, and the female sex and this, this feminine social construct as well, we're going to go straight to the scriptures. And I want you to see what the Bible says in Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 about ideal femininity. So uh, yeah, we'll have a minute up here or you can pause it. Um, take your time as long as you need to go, go through this right now. hope uh, that exercise was helpful for you as you saw what what the Bible talks about um, and in terms of womanhood. Uh, guys, Proverbs 31 is the book of wisdom in the Hebrew scriptures, right? It's, it's the wisdom book. It's the pinnacle of, of wisdom there. And the, the last thing 
the author of Proverbs puts in there for us is Proverbs 31. And guys, there is nothing like that passage in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where you have the woman on level playing field with the man. Like that is, that, that is um, unheard of. All right, so to have that happen, and guys, we can go through the scriptures and, and talk about this, like, I mean, you got Ruth and Esther and Deborah as a judge, and and uh, you have um, Sarah and and um, uh, Moses' wife, and uh, you have all these female figures, but then you even go in the New Testament, and I mean, I can go on in the New Testament about, about women in there with Lydia and with um, the women who support Jesus' ministry in Luke, and those who are the first witnesses to the resurrection, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the Bible has done, this is what people don't realize, Christianity, the Bible has done more for um, helping the world see, no way, male and female are both created in the image of God. So there's a there's there's this equality there among the sexes, and it's done more than anything else in the world to to bring that. Uh, and we could go, I could go through all that with you in like a three hour session uh, or, or more. But here, just in Proverbs thirty one, what did you notice about the woman? What what were some of those characteristics there? If you go through Proverbs thirty one, you see well. She's hardworking. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She's very responsible. She's an initiative taker in providing for her family. Wait, she provides for her? Yeah, she provides for her family. She is industrious and working with her hands. And she actually takes charge in business dealings in here. Yes, those are all the things that, those are all the characteristics that we typically associate with masculinity. And you have here the Bible associating them with femininity, with the woman. Okay, so um, this exercise is to show you that so much of of what we believe and so much of what what, uh, you believe about a man or a woman may be from somewhere else than from the scriptures history and culture and uh, your upbringing and and you know how your dad was and how your mom was and and uh, what you see on TV and movies and and social media and how we should act and we should behave so be open to having that broken down because he says here in verse 15 this is not the wisdom that comes down from above This wisdom that is filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's not what comes down from above. That wisdom is earthly. Well, he doesn't actually call it wisdom. He says that uh, it is is earthly. It is unspiritual. It's even demonic. Right? It it leads people astray. It it causes, he says, uh, jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition where they exist, they cause disorder and confusion and instability, right? That's what disorder is. And leads to every vile practice. And that is not what we want as followers of Jesus. We want our right theology to lead to right practice. So, if you think you have right theology on men and women, but it leads to wrong practice in terms of unloving, ungracious, unmerciful, all the things that 
are opposite to who God is, well, then your theology is wrong. Okay? And 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 guys, that goes for that goes for all of us. That goes for men and women, right? Because um, you know, there's there's spectrums here. There are, there's ends of the spectrum here. So you may be on this end or, or this end, and and both think you're right, but because you're not acting in the love of Christ, in this wisdom that we're going to we're going to see in this next verse, then you could be totally off. Because he says here in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first what? It's first pure. It's untainted. Has no blemishes. It is spotless. Which is why I've spent this whole time trying to trying to show you maybe what's what has been woven into the fabric of this theology for you. That thread, wow, that's a different color. It doesn't belong in this in, in this in this fabric. That thread is broken. I should I should remove that because you want to get to wisdom that is pure, and the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, and then it's also peaceable. It's wait, it's peaceable, right? It should not cause fights and quarrels among people. If your wisdom is pure, it will be peaceable, and so. You should stop talking if what you say leads to fights and quarrels because it should be peaceful. You should change direction so that you're, you're um, a peacemaker, right? And he says in, in Matthew 5, 19, those who are peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God because we've accepted that wisdom that comes from above, peaceable, gentle, gentle, right? Gentle, <laughs> open to reason, how many times do you get in a conversation about this stuff and, and people aren't open to reason? So open to reason. God says in Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Because here's the promise. If we can walk forward as, as peacemakers, because this is all, this is really what we want, right? This is what will happen. A harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace, by those who are called the children of God. That's what we want for you. And we want your conversations to sow a harvest of righteousness and peace. So I bless you with that as we go. Jesus, thank you that you have sown a harvest of righteousness and peace. And you've given us those tools to do that for your sake. And so may we do that as we figure out how to live together, how to be on mission together, how to love well, and how to show grace and mercy because those things triumph over judgment. And so we give our lives, our body, our church to you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.